Hello, this is Dr. Ria Mehta, and today we'll be mapping patient data ownership on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important, not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, recommendations, and outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be talking with Dr. Ria Mehta. Ria Mehta, PhD, is a molecular toxicologist, integrative health coach, and healthcare innovator who runs a cutting-edge Canadian company aiming to democratize healthcare by leveraging blockchain and smart contract technology to help individuals safely own and share their health and wellness data. Ria is also the founder of Global Smoothie Day, an inclusive wellness movement aimed at making the adoption of nutritious, plant-based smoothie lifestyle feel achievable and exciting. She is a featured member of the Mind Body Green Collective of global health and wellness experts, owing to her years writing for the platform and contributing as a thought leader in environmental toxicity. In her spare time, Rhea practices and teaches mantra-based meditation and Kriya Yoga from the Himalayan Vedantic tradition. Dr. Rhea, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you so much, Andrea. It's a pleasure to connect with you and your community. I'm really excited about this conversation. It's unusual for what we might talk about on the 15-Minute Matrix, but so important. Can you start us out, Dr. Ria, by taking a moment to explain what blockchain technology is, just to kick off our conversation? Sure. I'll do my best. <laughs> and let me start by sharing an example in the context of, of healthcare, because of course that is, uh, that is what is of importance to, uh, to you and your community. So blockchain technology is essentially a distributed ledger. So it's essentially a distributed spreadsheet that tracks data transactions. So you have, say a patient is sharing a piece of data with their practitioner. That's a transaction that gets recorded in this ledger. And so every transaction thereafter gets recorded in this ledger, but this ledger is distributed over several systems. So typically our health data is stored either in a system run by a hospital or a clinic or an institution. In this case, the entire uh, data is now being distributed across several systems. So what this does is, is it enforces a trail of data. And one of the features, the core features of this technology is immutability, which means the data cannot be modified or changed or removed. Anytime anyone goes in to, uh, to view or change that data, that gets recorded as a new transaction. So essentially, this uh, allows for what we would call in the blockchain world a trustless system. So there's full transparency. Which it sounds like to me, all of our information and data, anything we share, any labs that are drawn, any diagnoses that are distributed, this is all collected? That's right. So typically when we're 
you know, whenever we're, we're, we're getting a test done, there's a third party involved, right? It's not right. generally the patient that's interacting with the clinic or with the doctor and there's a direct transfer. There's always a third party involved. And anytime you have a third party involved, there's always a risk. There's a risk for that data being leaked. It doesn't have to be a bad actor per se. It's just that, that there's, you know, there's, there's, there are weaknesses in these transfer and data portability. And so um, we already know, and this is, you know, this is not new information that third parties do do also profit from patient data. And while, you know, one might say, well, this is not a problem per se, it's not really impacting me. Well, this, of course, opens up uh, the opportunity for that data to be leaked. But also, is this really what's fair to patients? Mm-hmm. So let's flip that idea that we're talking about and talk about the patient because we are today talking about patient data ownership. What does that ownership look like for us as patients and for all of our patients? Yeah, so that's a great question. So Imagine a future where we all have a a digital health wallet in the form of a mobile app that basically has all of our data, whether it's our EHR data, our electronic health records, mm-hmm. our genomic data, which we know is, you know, is we're kind of moving into that space where more and more people have uh, have uncovered their their genetic data. Um, their wellness data, how many devices and wearables and trackers exist today. So it would look like essentially a mobile app that that holds all of your data in one place that's fully organized, accessible to you, where you're able to you know, receive also personalized insights based on your data, which is another piece we can chat about. Um, but this app, what makes it different is that it's fully encrypted. So the, the patient is the owner, the holder of that data, and only they can decrypt that data using a private key. So we can go into cryptography, which is actually not a new concept. It's been around since World War II. Uh, but, but really, we use these encryption keys, uh, which are unhackable, and they allow for patients to essentially encrypt, decrypt that data. Now, they can send their doctor or someone at a lab a public key, which is connected to the private key. And we can use something called smart contracts, which essentially enforce a set of rules. So they're basically contracts, but they're pieces of codes. They're done through the internet, online, and they allow for uh, two anonymous parties to share a valuable asset. So the patient can create a number of rules and say, well, I only want this doctor, my doctor to have access to X data. And I want to expire that access after a certain period of time. And then the patient would use their private key as a signature on this smart contract. So essentially, the patient is able to really, you know, be in the driver's seat. And of course, the patient can make very clear, you know, if the patient's unable to make certain decisions because of their health situation, that's okay. They can share a public version of their key with their family, you know, their um, anyone who's who's acting on their behalf, as well as any other practitioner uh, in their, you know, in their family health team. I really love this. And there's kind of a coin that I'm seeing that has two sides. And the first side I want to talk about is is the empowerment side, like you talked about personal insights and how this data leads us to connect more of the dots, to put us in more control, us again, being us all being patients in some way or another. Can you talk more about how this is empowering for patient populations? 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, and so personalization, we know is the future. And we yes. know we're entering in this, I guess, era of big data, you know, I've, I've, there's and, and this is something that I think the public is becoming very much aware of because of a lot of these uh, public incidents, obviously, Facebook, social right. media, you know, I think people learning about WhatsApp and moving, you know, there's an exodus of people moving from WhatsApp to Telegram and Signal. So I think this idea that we have so much data and in the world of health, you know, I think in 2020 alone, we had 70,000 digital health apps come to life. And of course, you know, we, we've, we've had to move to virtual, we've had to move to telemedicine, but there's there's so much data being generated. Why is that not being organized and and able and 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 organized in a way that we're able to now extract value for the patient right. um, in their day to day, right? So you know, imagine a patient being able to support their daily health and wellness by understanding, you know, exactly how much water they should drink and how many hours they should sleep. And you know, I I use an Aura and I use an Apollo Neuro and I use all the all the tools. So you know, really. I would love for my technology to be able to really tell me what I should be doing and also be safeguarding me for the future and also safeguarding my family for the future, mm -hmm. looking at genomic data, you know, being able to really share value today and in the future. We know our data is valuable today. We know it's going to be more and more valuable as we start to extract and uncover uh, different types of data, sensitive data. We're moving into this, this world of you know, where we're really trying to understand mental health and create new treatments to solve mental health. Well, that also means that we're going to be uncovering a lot more information about patients. So from a psychotherapy perspective, and, you know, just recently, there was a, a hack in a set of psychotherapy clinics in Finland. So, you know, this is where this is obviously one of the reasons why we're doing what we're doing. It's, it's to protect patients from identity theft. But of course, also thinking about how do we extract value from all of this data today and tomorrow we can use artificial intelligence, machine learning, we can use all kinds of innovative technologies. But of course, if these technologies aren't being developed by, you know, by people who are using ethical practices, that's where you start to run into problems. Yeah, I can also see where there's more coding in the realm of the interpretation or the connections like you're talking about. Right now, a lot of these tests give us information, but they don't necessarily help us understand what to do with that. This is one of my issues with a lot of the functional testing, including the genomic testing. They don't really know, let us know what's activated or what we need to be worried about. So it's just information that we have on ourselves, but it's not really motivation to do anything. And there's a lack in the interpretation. Exactly. And we know that behavioral change is probably the hardest thing in the whole world. Yes. And, and, you know, and for a lot of people, it's actually incredibly hard because they don't even have time to think about their health and healing. And so we need to be more creative in terms of how we offer feedback and insights and education uh, to patients. And with this, you know, with this technology, with innovation in general, we can start to become, as I said, more creative uh, using, you know, compassionate nudges, as an example, being able to use gamification incentives. So one thing that our platform does is we actually have gamification built into our mobile app, which basically gives people points. And it actually doesn't just give them points, but it actually gives them points in the form of cryptocurrency. So this is a financial incentive to actually start to change their behaviors, whether it's drinking more water, whether it's, you know, doing X, Y, and Z, 
moving their body. And so this is where blockchain comes in. We can actually build these financial incentives in. You don't necessarily need to use a cryptocurrency. You can use different kinds of incentives. You can offer different rewards. But again, this idea of building incentives in to the experience, I believe, can also really help patients kind of take that next step. And the other piece is around consent. And so, you know, asking patients specifically if they consent to sharing their data, say for mm. research or sharing mm-hmm. their data, you know, for X, Y, and Z purpose. Generally, patients are, and, and data shows this, that they're actually very open to sharing their data. And actually, a lot of the, the, the times, they don't actually need to get paid. They'd rather donate that money to charity. So I think it's just this idea of asking, you know, transparently, would you like to participate in your own health experience? And at the end of the day, as a patient, I, it's my data. So I, you know, yes, if I'm, if I'm included in the mix, if I'm included in the conversation, the chances are I'm probably going to want to play a role in changing my own health and happiness. So I love this and I love how it elevates the value for the patient and it really takes what we do in functional medicine and functional nutrition to a different level because we're having to do a lot of that interpretation and gathering on our own. It's a little bit uh, less technological, so to speak, and this is a value add for a clinician who can see the whole as well. The flip side of the coin that I wanted to ask you about, Dr. Ria, comes into the realm of patient app. So we're talking about patient empowerment. At the same time, we're talking about how much people need to be incentivized to walk or drink water, right? How much do patients actually want this data? Of course, there are all of us who may be biohackers or want that data on ourselves. But what I find is that for the most part, people are still wanting the one size fits all. There's still denial around the fact that there is bio-individuality, that if I have Hashimoto's and so do you, that we don't need the same treatment just because we have the same diagnosis. And I would say that's not just patient mentality. It's also the prevailing mentality in medicine, not necessarily technology, but in medicine. So how does this start to shift that kind of consensus that seems to exist? You know, that's a that's a very good question. Um, I think really it's at the end of the day, it's about first of all the user experience and education. Yes. So you know, we ask this question a lot to practitioners, to clinicians, to patient advocacy groups. You know, what will it take for uh, patients to really start to take this level of responsibility and want to take it? And I think it's really about you know how we onboard them into this process. And it, it's, yes. and, 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 you know, it's not going to happen overnight. We know that. And it might be that there are the early adopters, which we know that, you know, already exists. There's always going to be yes. early adopters. And they'll probably be the biohackers of the world. People who, you know, are, I'm going to, I'm going to use the word uh, privilege because, you know, I believe that I'm incredibly privileged to even take, take time to learn on my own. So I think we're going to have to really focus on, of course, policy is going to have to play a role. But I think from a individual perspective, we're really going to have to, and from an innovator perspective, and clinician perspective, we're really going to have to think about how do we, you know, how do we create 
onboarding experiences? How do we how do we really truly empower our patients to take this step? And it might be that we need another person, you know, another human who is playing a role in the sort of family health team, whether it's a coach. I think the role of a coach is obviously incredibly important. I'm a coach myself. Um, I think also from a digital health perspective, if we're going to bring technology into the experience, maybe that's having, you know, somebody who's actually the digital health lead of a family health team and, you know, who's actually educating the patient and walking them through, you know, a user journey. This is not anything new. There's there are several apps out there and, you know, we have to do several types of focus groups and surveys to really understand what it takes for individuals to actually take that first step. But generally, it's it's a mindset thing and it's a compassion thing. And I think we, we need to create space and we need to almost relieve practitioners of, you know, a lot of the paperwork that they, that they have to do so that they actually have more time to just spend listening and hearing and connecting with their patients. Yeah, beautiful. And I, I think the now that I'm hearing in this conversation is really around education. That's what I teach clinicians to do, make sure we are in the role of educating our patients. And the more we take on that responsibility, the more we move towards the possibilities that I hear you speaking into. Do you have any other final things that you would say clinicians should be doing? I'm going to say get out there and educate, but what would you say that clinicians listening today should be taking on as their responsibility to move us towards future possibilities of patient empowerment and data ownership? Yeah, I would say, you know, exactly. I would say learn and join, you know, join whether it's a consortium or some kind of a learning group, meetup group. And there's so many groups out there on, you know, on digital health and the future of digital health. And, you know, we have a library um, with, you know, with Bowhead. That's something that we decided, you know, since there were no conferences happening in 2020, why not just start to create um, so much education? I think it's very timely because of, again, so many of these unexpected consequences that are happening with technology more broadly. Um, But I would say learn, you know, find, find the thought leaders out there who, you know, who are, are healthcare professionals, but who are also focusing on ethical technology and, 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 and patient empowerment, and just try and educate yourself because the patients are going to come to you first. They're going to come to you. And, you know, and if you know who to direct them to, uh, then of course, that's going to help the patient get from, you know, step zero to step one. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. Ria, for the work you do and for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Andrea. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 